0: Today, for the 16th episode of Brain Explained, we have Dr. Kim Yong-soo, a researcher at Penn State University, who will be talking about his life leading to research and the paper titled Quantitative Relationship Between Cerebrovascular Network and Neuronal Cell Types in Mice. So we'll be looking at how blood flow is different in different areas of the brain. So hi, Kim, thanks for coming on the episode, and could you tell me a little bit more about yourself?
1: Yeah, thanks for the invitation, and it is my pleasure to introduce myself and my research. I'm from South Korea originally, and I went to Seoul University, got my bachelor's degree in mm-hmm. pharmacy. So I got a pharmacist degree, actually became a pharmacist, So after, after huh. all. I uh, worked in a cancer hospital as a hospital pharmacist for a year. What made you choose pharmacy? The uh, what I mean when I was in the high school, I kind of wanted to be either dentist or a doctor. So mm-hmm. my high school teacher said, for those who want to go to medical school or dentist school to make more money, you guys should change your mind because <laughs> that's not what that discipline is for. Yeah. And I kind of realized, ah, I have a bit of that in mind too. So I thought, okay, let's change my mind. So. Then I realized doctors can, in that high school mind, high school students' mind, doctors only can cure patients in front of them. But as a pharmacist, if pharmacists can develop a drug, drug can reach out to everybody in the world and really have a wider impact. That was how I thought as a high school student. So that's why I went to the uh, of pharmacy. I realized many doctors actually also developing a lot of drugs. That's what I realized down the road. But Back then, as a young student of mine, how I chose to be a pharmacist.
0: And then what happened after you were, You said you were working cancer pharmacy for a time?
1: In the hospital oh. pharmacist for cancer hospital oh. pharmacist for about a year. Then uh, I realized I don't like taking orders from others, <laughs> constantly making drugs based on the doctor's order. And I didn't like that part. And I didn't like that, that repetitive part of uh, work. So... Then I decide, Okay, I need something more exciting, something challenging, something rewarding, also something that involves a lot of traveling. Then I realized research careers might provide such opportunity. Then I prepare my uh, study abroad applications and submit my graduate application to uh, schools in the U.S. and got accepted in the Northwestern University for Ph.D. program. So I was about three years in Chicago. And then PhD... What was right. your PhD about? So the PhD topic was about adult neural stem cells. Yes, that's anything. There's two areas
0: I'm really interested in, neuroscience and stem cells.
1: Back yeah. then, neural stem cells got a lot of attention. Yeah. And the adult brain also has a, a neural stem cell, at mm-hmm. least in the rodent. Um, yeah. So my third subject was studying those... Uh, neurogenesis and then their migration and Mm -hmm. how they integrate into the circuit Mm -hmm. and the biology of it was what I was uh, investigating. My uh, advisor decided to move to University of Oxford in the middle of my PhD. So I followed him. So I spent three years in Chicago and uh, two and a half years in University of Oxford. Uh, Then then I finished my PhD. Then... uh, Decide to continue pursue career in the neuroscience by mm-hmm. doing a postdoc. So I moved to Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in New York. So I started my postdoc lab in uh, 2010 in the laboratory of a uh, Paul Austin. And that what was web- that
0: research on? Yeah,
1: so mm-hmm. that research, my passion in neuroscience about autism. That's how I got into the neuroscience. Then I couldn't find the lab during my PhD, so I joined the lab. To pursue my second uh, research interest, which is stem cell, during my post, I want to come back to autism research. I also love technology and particularly imaging technologies. So I went to the Google and then type in like autism plus imaging, mm-hmm. and the uh, one lab pops, and uh, that was the Cold Spring Harbor lab. And so. That lab was developing a new 3D high-resolution imaging method to visualize entire cellular resolution detail in the whole mouse. That got me very interested in it. And the research was also applying this new technology to understand how mouse model autism has altered brain circuitry to have impaired social processing. So that really attracted my attention. And I got the position... While I was in the postdoc, I was helping to develop these uh, imaging techniques and I was developing a lot of imaging processing uh, method as well to handle large capacity imaging data set. And then the apply, uh, apply these techniques to understand how mouse brain processes social information, what brain areas engage in, in the different social context. So that's what I did, and Postdoc, and with that new technology, I was able to get a job in the Penn State University as a tenure-track assistant professor in the 2015. And last year, I got promoted to associate professor with the tenure. So that's how, where I am at now.
0: Okay, and this is the question about what exactly is an associate professor? You don't really have these roles in. British universities only from American universities.
1: Right. So American university has a uh, three categories. First one is assistant professor. Okay. And the next one is associate professor. And third okay. category is a full professor.
0: Oh, okay. I you're nearly there. You're nearly right. Up you're I'm in the second in
1: the, yeah. in the in the in the ranking and waiting to be moved up to the top category.
0: And regarding the paper, how long have you been doing this sort of re- for the research for the paper? How long did it take
1: you to get the results that you put in the paper? This particular neurovascular mapping paper took me about three years to get the result that we want to, and then took another like one year to get it published.
0: yeah, I've always found that's the case like you you have the results, but then you send it to this journal, that journal, and then they send back changes or something, and then it just takes so long to actually get it published. How did That's you right. find that process? Were you quite
1: familiar with it already? Or was this... Yeah, I had a similar experience previously when I was post postdoc, And this kind of experience happens frequently when I aim for very high-profile journals. And this time, also we we're aiming for high-profile journal, And the high-profile journal has a very high bar. And there is a very strict uh, editorial process as well. And I'm a junior in investigator without much of the reputation. So... The process has been tough and uh, I tried to get over it. But this time it took many, many rejections, probably three rejections from different, three to four rejections from different journals. And then um, finally got accepted.
0: Regarding your lab, how large is your lab now? Like how many different members do you have and what?
1: We have a mixture of uh, people. So we we have now one so this this paper was coming from a research associate which is mm-hmm. a step scientist position we have one postdoc and we have we have about 3 to 4 students graduate students and mdph students and 2 to 3 technicians that's so about around 7 or 8 pe- members typical size of my lab and it's fluctuating over the time and now let's move on to the em paper so what exactly
0: started you off with the research into this paper? And how did you begin doing the research?
1: I was always interested in the neuron as a neuroscientist. And I realized neuroscientists have been obsessed with the neuron. But then suddenly I realized, okay, brain has more cell type than neuron. And brain has, uh, of course, another major cell type called glia. But I wanted to do something that uh, not many people do. And I was like, looking around and there is uh, this vascular component in the brain. And brain, unlike other parts of the brain, does not have any red energy reservoir. So when the energy depletion happens, such as stopping of the blood uh, flow, brain is the organ that goes down first. And it's a heavily energy-demanding organ. Yeah, it's like 20% or 25% of our energy. think energy, energy yeah. Our something. body energy consumer it yeah, precisely consumed by
0: our brain. And think of it, it's only two percent of our body weight or something like that. So
1: precisely. So um neur- neuronal health and its operations critically depends on energy supply. But this equation, how the how much neuron consume energies and how vasculature supply energy and oxygen. It's not well understood. And uh, this is largely ignored aspect of the uh, brain science. So I realized uh, I have a technology that I can tackle this seemingly very complex network of cerebral vasculatures in the brain. And could you briefly describe the, f- the main
0: findings of the paper?
1: Right. So the one of the key questions here is how the cerebral vasculatures is uh, differently organized across the different brain, and how this uh, differently organized cerebral vasculatures is spatially related to different cell types. So, in the first part, what we found was uh, motor sensory processing regions that requires a fast signal processing are uh, heavily vascularized. In contrast, association area that integrate sensory signals from multiple different sensory modalities, those uh, integrated brain area tend to have a less dense vascular. So, former, why the sensory motor processing area has this heavily vascularized area, that's probably because sensory modality and the motor component requires very precise timing and then spatial controls to distinguish very rapidly changing the signals from outside and then generate a the very precise motor output. Contrast, integrative areas does not require that fast and spatially uh, precise signal processing. Rather, it need to integrate information from long periods of time and then generate some holistic understanding of that signal. So they are probably not as heavily vascularized. Right, as a motor sensory area. So that was the first uh, observation. And the second observation is how does different uh, neuronal cell type is uh, spatially related with the different uh, vascular organizations. Oh, okay. And there are many different types of neurons, and uh, such as Excitatory neurons serve as accelerators in the brain, and there is also inhibitory neurons that serve as a brake system in the brain. So it's really working as like accelerator and brake in the car. So these two work, should work together to process information effectively. Even in the inhibitory cells, there are multiple different cell types with a different so-called braking capabilities can do very fast spiking and fast breaking while the other one has different types of break among this inhibitory cell type there is a brain cell type called parvalbumin yep in- inhibitory interneuron so those are the cortical interneurons that has a very fast spiking property so parvalbumin neuron are also uh, contains much high density of mitochondria so these cell types are known for heavily energy consuming compared to other inhibitory cells. We are asking, does this heavily uh, energy-demanding neuronal cell type is spatially correlated with the cerebral vascular density? So we uh, look at the correlation between different cell types. There was an extremely tight correlation between probability neuronal density with the cerebral vascular density. So it looks like vasculature is there, to support the high uh, PB dense area, the motor sensory uh, regions. And so that, when we look at other GABAergic cell types, GABAergic inhibitor cell type, we did not find such a strong correlation with the other cell types. Oh, okay. So this really tells that this uh, uh, Pabalbumin neurons has strong correlation with the uh, um, cerebral vasculatures. So why the Pabalbumin cells interesting? Pabalbumin cells has been heavily implicated in many neurodevelopmental disorders such as autism and schizophrenia. And where exactly
0: are they found in the brain? Are they found in the cortex or are they also found in deeper regions as well?
1: Yep, there are of cells in the many uh, uh, cortical regions as well as a subcortical area. So far, much of the study was focused in the cortical region. So that's kind of where the focus of the current paper is about. But parvalbumin neurons are also found in many, uh, many in the subcortical area.
0: Because I find this really interesting because my interests are more to do with neurodegenerative diseases. But I've been finding with the research I've been doing, there's a large link between neurodevelopmental and neurodegenerative diseases in terms of sometimes the neurons in, involved. And one neuron that carries them popping up is parvalbumin neurons. And another thing, I don't know if you know about them, is have you heard of extracellular nets or perineural nets? nets. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Or heavily around Pervalbumin PV neurons. And, and somehow I know that will be linked to blood supply and energy demand in some way, because you get a loss of the perineural nets and in diseases, and you also get the PV neurons not firing properly. So... What do you think? Like, where's the link here? What do you think happened first? Is it the neuron, the nets go, the neurons
1: not working, or is it the blood supply, or is it all three? Right. So, I will ask the so it looks like you have uh, two questions uh, aging and the neurodevelopment axis. Yeah. Um, that's the first question. The second question is about perineural net and its a relationship with a problem in the cerebral vasculature. To answer the per- first questions on the aging versus neurodevelopment, my lab. So this particular uh, paper is all about adult brain. My lab's also studying how these cerebral vascular networks change over the course of normal aging. Oh, okay, yep. And also how it change in the pathological conditions such as muscle model of Alzheimer's disease. So, and simultaneously, we're looking also neurodevelopmental aspect as well, how these cerebral vasculatures evolve. To, to supply energies to the brain. To me, aging is a part of a neurodevelopmental process. Hmm. They are exactly in the same axis. Mm-hmm. So, right? Okay, yep. Yeah. I can see where you're going, yep. Yeah, in the aging, if you look at aging, a lot of things are coming back to the neurodevelopmental phase. So the, the neurodevelopment aging are in the same category. So I basically treat this as a one problem.
0: Oh, okay.
1: So I'm looking at both questions. So those uh, research is going to come out in the next few years. Uh-huh. So stay tuned for that.
0: Definitely.
1: So I just want to answer your second question. It's about mm-hmm. power perineuronal net and the PV neuron. So you're right. And the perineuronal net is heavily implicated in opening and closing critical window so during early postnatal development, early childhood, a uh, brain opens the plasticity window, meaning the, uh, now mm-hmm. we are open to learn. That's mm-hmm. childhood. A lot of things yep. uh, we learn things and uh, we basically develop who we are in terms of brain processing. And mm-hmm. after adolescence, when we en- entered early adulthood, per- perineural uh, uh, net really begin to clamp down and then try to hold whatever that you learn. Pain you are. Right in this process, how the cerebral vasculatures are changing, is actually completely unknown. Okay. What's really interesting is vasculatures don't know how to generate the networks. So the way it find it is neuron during the early development process, neurons spontaneously fire and then exhaust oxygen and energies around it. The energy, uh, uh, the lack of energy, like spear almost uh, so. And in this hypoxic condition, it's basically signaling vasculatures to grow and populate that area.
0: Ah, okay, yeah.
1: So the cerebral vascular is listening, firing early development. The more neurons fire, the more vasculature generate in that area. So how does Pabalum means the neurons helping cerebral vascular network uh, genesis is excellent research questions which we don't know yet.
0: Okay, because that was actually one of the questions I was thinking of doing for a PhD that I was interested in, but I kind of changed track. But it is an area I'm quite interested in. And in regards to blood supply, what cell types, or did you look at cell types that were mainly involved, or which ones do you think are controlling the blood supply? I so in,
1: in the manuscript, that uh, we have uh, something called a parasite. Yep. It's P-E-R-I, parasite. Yep. Some people misunderstand as a parasite, P-A-R-A-S-S-I-T. Uh, Not okay. a parasite, it's parasite. Okay. Uh, so I have to clarify what I mean. <laughs> so these are parasite, the perivascular cell type that wraps around the vasculature. It literally wraps around. And uh, um, what they do is when neuron or other cell types nearby need more blood, they relax allow yeah. more blood to flow. And when that, that high demand uh, situation is gone, then they constrict again to conserve energy. So parasites is one of cell types that control the blood flow. But at the same time, there are many other cell types, such as smooth muscle cells in the artery compartment, to also work with the neuron and glia cell types to dynamically regulate blood supply.
0: And which one in your opinion is having the greater control? Do you think it's the parasites or the smooth muscle cells? Or is it do you think it's dependent on region
1: of the brain? Right. So it a uh, parasite is more for the micro vessels, very, very tiny vasculators. And the smooth muscle cells are more like big vessels, such as arteries. So they have a different kind of role. And arteries more like a big area, like really the you basically control the big pipe. And the parasites are more for like a yeah. tiny yeah. area. So, depends on each scenario, different cell types will engage differently. You mentioned that you looked at different the blood flow
0: in the different blood uh, regions of the brain. Were you mainly looking at cortex, or were you actually able to look at deeper regions as well? Because you mentioned motor sensory and association areas, but they normally in the cortex, were you able to look at like the
1: hippocampus
0: or hypothalamus and these kind of areas?
1: Right. So Mm -hmm. typically cerebrovascular imaging was done uh, with a cortex-centric view. And the method that I uh, used here allowed me to look at entire brain at the single cell resolution. So we were able to uh, visualize the whole cerebrovascular vascular network. So we were looking at the two different subcortical area, one in thalamus, another in the striatum. Those thalamus and striatums closely communicate with the cortex. So we are looking at whether thalamus and the striatum component, they also have a motor sensory Area and the integrative uh, of brain area as well. So we were asking questions whether those motor sensory versus integrative area also ha- in the thalamus and striatum also has a different cerebrovascular networks. Research showed that it is in- indeed the motor sensory area, not only in the cortex, but also thalamus and striatum tend to have higher density of cells, further supporting dense energy needs to process motor sensory signals.
0: Okay. And regarding the mouse models used, what mouse model did you use and were you using any disease mouse?
1: Or- Everything in this study is a normal mouse. We're using an inbred mouse called C57, and uh, we're using two-month-old, which is a young adult. That's what we use in this case. And uh, we are currently investigating aged mouse brain, as well as mouse model of Alzheimer's disease, that's ah, the okay. what's under active investigation. And what is aged like? What? How old? Typically, we use somewhere between eighteen month old, equivalent to the human age of sixty years old, okay. or twenty four month old, which is equivalent to a human age around eighty years old. Uh, okay. So those are our time point. And you mentioned
0: other because you mentioned this autism-like uh, mouse
1: mice, are you ever thinking of using them as well? That's an excellent question. So I was uh, actually looking at anybody ever done cerebral vascular network imaging in the mouse model of autism. Okay. Is is barely like non, no research has been done, except last year there was a big nature neuroscience paper now di- uh, mentioning about cerebral vascular changes in the autism mouse model. Okay. Who knows that community, this community might begin to pay attention to it. Uh, and. Are you
0: thinking of doing this sort of research
1: into autism mice? I, I think so. In the end of days, I want to, have to do integrative analysis. Neuron is only one part of the equations. Mm. Baskurites is also part one part of the equation. And there is a third component called glia. Yep. So I think... In the end of days, we actually have to understand how neuron and non-neuronal cell types interact with each other, create a holistic like understanding of the brain processing. And then they will give real uh, understanding of what goes wrong in the uh, some pathological conditions such as autism. So that's what my lab is heading to.
0: And how, how similar do you think these diseases are in terms of like, do you think the data from cerebral vascular would be the same in autism-like mice compared to um, aged mice or Alzheimer's disease mice?
1: Right. So it's basically it's not going to be all the same. Different diseases will have a different uh, uh, brain area. So autism also has a multiple different uh, behavior impairment. Social behavior impairment is probably col- cortex-based. In contrast, repetitive behavior component of the autism is probably striatum-based. So it depends on what domain of the behavior problem in each disease is. We can postulate what brain area might have. We just have to <laughs> look at uh, case by case, but I think we really have to see a bit more holistically about different brain region and different cell types within each brain region.
0: And regarding the 3D imaging technology used, Could you explain that in a bit more detail, like how does it work and how precise of an image can it get?
1: So uh, basically the uh, advanced here is uh, ability to image entire mouse finger cell resolution. So can it also image the deeper regions, not just the cortex? Absolutely. So uh, we have uh, two different methods. And uh, what's uh, included in this current manuscript is a technology called serial two-photon tomography. The way it works is it has a high-resolution microscope that pay, basically taking two-dimensional tile imaging. So take pictures, go to next neighbor, go to next, and then keep moving around to take two-dimensional tile imaging. So that's two-dimensional. Okay, that's fine. Where does 3D come from? There is razor blade vibratome sitting next to it that cut away what has been just imaged. Oh, okay. So imaging, cut, imaging, cut, imaging, cut repeating this thing over and over again, allows us to scan through the entire brain ah, okay. at the single cell resolution. And uh, that's one technology. And uh, recently, my labs begin to use a tissue clearing technology with uh, another method called sheet fluorescent microscope. In these techniques, we can clear the whole mouse brain, make it transparent. That's another ah. technology that we've been using. Are these quite
0: complex techniques? Can you modify multi multivoltor microscopes? to do it quite easily or do
1: you have to get quite expensive novel stuff i wouldn't call this thing is a simple do i, I mean that uh, you can of course modify two photon microscope to something like this but you have to know like ele- like electronics it's not that simple because i'm
0: starting a phd soon and i'm, I'm thinking could i use this tech because i'm i'm looking at rats and looking to try to develop a neurogenetic model or something and could i use this technique
1: when i'm analyzing my data to see what affects it has? right so the best do in that case is go to a lab that has this microscope okay and which <laughs> labs have this microscope like is it are there quite a few do you think or is it quite rare i believe uh, many university has something like this in their core facility okay so okay. not many lab has something like this on their own, but oh, yeah. many university have it in the core facility. So I'm sure that uh, you wouldn't be having a hard time to access something like this.
0: What? Well, because there's quite a few 3D imaging techniques out there. So how's your technique different or better than other 3D imaging techniques?
1: what i use does not require any tissue processing meaning a lot of tissue processing uh, tissue clearing method and, and all that can introduce a volume potential volume changes and change of signals though many methods now being developed to compensate based on what the uh, tissue clearing they use but the technique that are being used in this manuscript doesn't require any of the tissue processing we just use intact brain and then just image it at the single cell resolution
0: why did you want to look at GABAergic neurons and why do you not choose, I don't know, because I'm thinking exactly like dopaminergic neurons because they're quite energy intense as well.
1: The reason why I was paying attention to the GABAergic neurons is they are heavily implicated in the many of the neurodevelopmental and psychiatric. So uh, there is a big theory called the excita- excitation and inhibition EI balance. <laughs> so these are the accelerators and breaks. They are imbalanced. There's either system is uh, driving too fast or driving too slow. And garbage cells are key in understanding how the EI balance is maintained in the normal brain, how it changed in the uh, conditions. There's, I was drawn into this uh, uh GABA-ergic cell types.
0: Yeah, because I've seen that excitation inhibition come up in quite a lot of different diseases and I'm quite interested in it. But it, the, the problem with all these theories is which what thing goes wrong first that's kind of what we need to like is it blood supply is it the excitation of or neurons or some other neurons or is it glial cells like that's what we need to find and i think that's always going to be the problem in that case in my opinion that blood flow plays a look a lot more of a role than we think in brain diseases because now from medical data like they're advising a lot more Like they're saying, what protects your heart, protects your brain. Like they're giving people the same advice for brain diseases that they would for heart attacks and other like atherosclerosis and stuff like that. So that's got me thinking that it could be blood supply in this case. Yeah, Is that something you're looking into? Is your lab research mainly just trying to understand the kind of how it works? Or are you also trying to look into ways to change the blood supply and how it works as well?
1: Right. So the, so far, the what we done is observation how the normal brain is organized, and the follow-up experiment will be manipulation experiment. Mm-hmm. Can we reduce the blood supply and then selectively, I mean, change the energy uh, equilibrium in the particular area? How that influence neuronal processing? There is influencing the behavior output. How does that correlate with a particular disease? And in disease context, how the vasculature is manipulated? By manipulating vasculatures, can we overcome some of the deficit? So this particular question has been raised by many different uh, diseases, particularly in Alzheimer's disease. In Alzheimer's disease, many people try to rescue neuronal death. But why does neuron die to begin with?
0: Yeah. But that's that question we've got to right. answer.
1: If the, the blood supply is basically impaired, no matter how much nutrient you give to neurons, neuron will still die yeah. because their infrastructure is broken. So, by understanding what is actually causing neuronal death, the therapeutic approach can be refocused, maybe reestablishing and uh, basically renovating infrastructure of the brain might be more viable way of preventing Alzheimer's disease or rescuing Alzheimer's disease. So that's important things to consider.
0: And garden the market you use for parasites, why did you choose, like you chose Plato derived growth factor beta, but I've, because I've done my master's on parasites is one of the markets we're looking for. And there's quite a mm-hmm. lot of Markers for them? Are you thinking of using different markers in the future or like multiple markers in the future?
1: Right. So that's a great question. So, the, mm-hmm. this particular uh, reporter mouse using PDGFR beta is marking parasite and the smooth muscle cells as well. Mm-hmm. So, it is hard to dis- cleanly distinguish parasite. And the parasite also has different subtypes within. So, we are now in the process of applying multiple different markers in the same brain. To further dissect the subtype of the parasite. So that work is on uh, Okay.
0: And oh yeah, I remember you mentioned with your the mice that you can do it without staining them or any tissue processing. But because you're not staining them, does that mean you can only use very small amount of markers because there has to be a mouse, the mouse has to genetically express the reporter line. You can't stain for it in a sense.
1: Precisely. So that's okay. why we now begin utilizing the second techniques. We are actually using clearing with the antibody labeling with the different colors. Okay. With Uh, the light-shift microscope to supplement this approach. So we are utilizing both techniques in my lab. You showed in your research that blood flow, like directionality plays a role. Could you explain that a bit more? Right. So it's basically the directionality is basically how the brain blood flow and... We were looking at the different area of the cortex. It's basically, which direction is the general uh, direction? Generally, is it so? If we think about 3D, blood can flow top to bottom and then begin to flow lateral direction, right? And the different uh, cortical area has a different uh, processing unit. For example, layer 4 in the cortex receives info from thalamus, and then layer 5 is executing the output to the rest of the subcortical. And the layer 2-3 is more like integrative processing unit within the cortex. So we are asking how the vasculatures are differently organized across the different uh, cortical layers. And uh, we've, what we found is based where the directionality of vasculatures are differently organized.
0: And why did you choose the isocortex? Did you also look at, or are you thinking of looking at deeper brain regions in the future?
1: Yep. So in the manuscript, we have to pick one. We cannot describe everything. So uh, I happen to like uh, cortex. Cortex is what makes a human different from the rest of the uh, uh, animals. Um, Cortex is also, it's known to be stereotypically organized with the non-cortical column theory. what exactly is
0: is cortical column theory
1: cortical column is basically the same processing unit a deep layer to the surface It's basically it's one computation unit repeating across different cortical areas so if you understand this one cortical column you can now understand how entire cortex is working so it's basically processing unit of the cortex okay that makes sense Contrast subcortical area. Many areas has a nucleus structure. Nucleus structure is one nucleus is for one function. So it's like each nucleus is uniquely organized. In contrast, cortex is repeating. So for theorists, this is easy because you can them into a the single column. Then it helps you to understand the entire. Core. And you mentioned looking in
0: nitric oxide positive neurons. Why do you choose nitric oxide? Is that because it affects blood? Vasodilation. Are there any other proteins and neurotransmitters that you're thinking of looking at that could affect neuro vasodilation?
1: So so far, research shows neuronal nitric oxide synthase expressing mm-hmm. neurons are the most powerful vasodilating neurons in the cortex. Okay. So we were looking at the spatial-temporal correlations with the cerebrovascular networks and NOS positive neurons. We originally thought the more vasculatures you have, the more NAS neuron it'll be, more things to control. And we saw completely inverse relationship, anti-correlations. So we were very surprised by that. And it turns out the integrative brain regions has more NOS with the less number of the cerebral vascular, while motor sensory regions has a reduced number of the, uh NOS while having more cerebral vascular. That took us a little surprise and uh, do I know why? I don't know why mm. yet. Could it be because if you've got less blood vessels,
0: you'll need more vasodilation to get the blood supply?
1: So here is uh, um, how I in- interpret. So the uh, nitrate, acid and loss neurons was mm-hmm. often on the arterial compartment. Mm-hmm. while. Uh basal dilator, such as a pedicite is also basal uh, dilating. Those are working in more like uh, right at the vessel stage and small vessel stage. Perhaps in the having more NAS neuron in the integrative brain region has a better con- in the blood supply in the larger brain regions. More <laughs> by controlling arterial compartments. But I, I don't have evidence. And are there any limitations
0: that you were that you found? And are you thinking of like? rectifying
1: them in the future? So the really big downside of what we have so far is we cannot distinguish arterial compartment, microvascular compartment, and venule compartment. Having these informations can help us to generate the flow direction, but we don't have that. All we know is basically, okay, here is vasculature. So we cannot draw the direction of the vector graph. it. of So what we are working on now in the lab is marking each different uh, vascular segment so we can generate uh, the flow direction uh, diagram as well so we can understand the flow direction in addition to the structure uh, uh, organization.
0: And what future work are you thinking of doing in your lab like is it all just based around
1: cerebrovascular and this work in the paper or are you also branching into other areas as well? Right. Uh, Cerebral vasculature mapping is one-third of what my lab, and uh, this is really the part of what my lab. And what I want to do overall in my lab is to understand overall uh, type architecture in the whole uh, brain. That's what I want to understand that change across the time. So future work is going to involve cerebral vascular mapping in the aged brain, and the developing brain simultaneously now introducing glia cell type mapping to understand how the glias organize across different regions and then now bring it all together with the neuron to really have general Uh integrative understanding of how brain is composed with the different cell type across different different brain region that's the goal that's that seems quite extensive but really interesting
0: that's literally that's what i've been telling a lot of scientists that I've been talking to about brain regions and neuroscience research because a lot of us get later focused in on one cell type or one area of the brain we forget that it's such a it's such a complex big system that you kind of sometimes you need the people looking at the kind of bigger picture of the relationships between everything and that's the only reason way we're actually going to find out what in normally and also in disease context what's like, what's the most important part? Because you can't just look at what, like mic- microglia or PV neurons and see, oh, they're the most important because they work like this. But then you're forgetting what's happening with the parasite or something.
1: Yep, but precisely. How long
0: do you think that, do you think that research is going to take? Quite a, quite a while to come about.
1: I don't think so. The really, I'm optimistic about modern computer infrastructures. Data that we've been generating is, is really begin accelerating. So my lab used to generate two to three hundred gigabytes gigabyte of the data set per day. Okay, that's and now we are producing uh, two to three terabyte of the data per day, oh. and we are entering the petabyte stage of the data very quickly. So we are ramping up our computing infrastructures very mm-hmm. and simultaneously, we. The theory has to uh, move forward as well. So there is a ton of the data. Without understanding it, it just becomes meaningless bits of data. So we're working to uh, come up with uh, some kind of a binding theory to reduce the dimension and then really come up with uh, some understandable explanations. This is how the brain works types of things. That takes a lot of discussion and thought process. So, I'm hoping, I'm really hoping in the next 10 to 15 years, I may be able to say something about it. Um, Hopefully, I'll be a head of a lab by then. Yeah, yeah. Looking forward to it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking, first of all, increase our understanding. And that's the research we need to get the kind of cures that we Mm -hmm. need for these diseases, because we've known about them for so long and still we don't have effective therapies for so many of them and mm. I think this is the reason we don't have the understanding and now moving on from your um, paper regarding mm. the kind of research area you do what advice would you give to students who want to go into that
1: area I thought about that questions. <laughs> something that I would recommend is looking around And uh, you briefly mentioned before that the people have their own favorite brain region, favorite brain cell type, protein, gene, whatnot, spend their entire life. You have a tree, then you begin to pick uh, apples, and then it's getting increasingly harder and harder, but the reward is getting increasingly lower and lower. If you look just around, right next to you, there might be a tree full of apples.
0: Uh, uh, That's true, actually, because... Well, that was the case with me. I was so fixed on kind of one area that I forgot that there's like, it's like I was looking into Alzheimer's disease from a particular angle. I was like, I just want to look at it from stem cells, from making induced pluripotent stem cells and brain organoids. But then for a year I was applying for PhDs and there weren't really many coming about. And then, like you said, I looked around and then I found, oh, you can actually do Alzheimer's disease research from other areas. And now my PhD is going to be about developing a, a better model for Alzheimer's disease using rats. Yep. Yeah. works like I'm technically like a living image of it.
1: I've used Yeah, it. absolutely. So I think just what I would suggest is just read broadly. And but then... what
0: should people read? Because many people are normally... It was also like this when I was doing my undergraduate degree and getting into neuroscience... Like, what do you read? Because sometimes the papers can be a bit
1: too dense. Yeah. So you can do targeted search as well as I have a, I mean, these days email subscription is so popular. So I subscribe uh, major journals. So they come to my inbox Saturday, Sunday morning, and I just uh, sit in my couch and then just just read through, just read through. So if your subject is Alzheimer's field, and I just read through everything. Just uh, look at look at scan through the uh, the title, and then broadly just watching for if anything is happening. So watch how the science progress, and the, having good understanding of it helps you to dictate the trend. Science also has a trend, right? And you want to be in the uh, uh, some uh, emerging field, not like old like uh, uh, the field that that's getting outdated. So. That has been uh, some of my strategy. And uh, go to conference, like not only the targeted small conference, but mm-hmm. also big conference like Society for Neuroscience. And then uh, you listen in big lectures. That's nothing to do with what you do. How do people, like if you're an
0: undergraduate student or something like that, or even a end-of-college student, how would you get into these conferences? Especially because some of them are like quite expensive for a student,
1: like 200, exactly. 300 pounds. So. Exactly. So for that uh, study, very early career scientists, what I'll suggest is knock the door of the lab, some Mm -hmm. lab that you may interest. Get your foot in the door first. And that nobody's going to send this undergraduate to a conference for free. Nobody's going to do it. They have to prove themselves. They are worthy to be sent to the conference. So knock the door, volunteer to do some research in some lab, and then uh, start somewhere and then begin the career and then keep looking and then keep growing. Uh that's good advice because now moving
0: on from that what do you do in your free time when you get it because i know scientists can be quite busy
1: yeah and uh, that's a good question i i watch tv (laughs) (laughs) i I tv and i watch tv and uh, that's how i get relaxed and uh, what sort
0: of programs if you don't mind if you want to
1: i I watch just action movies sci-fi movies in the something that i don't use my brain. I,
0: I, we need that like what because for different people it's different things it can be tv some people it's doing some sort of sport like yeah a hobby for me it's a mixture of reading and watching anime and movies so that's what i do to relax like you can just get absorbed in it and it's not like you're reading a page. Like
1: it's yeah and also like uh, I, I like drinking so i drink <laughs> beer, wide and uh i'm talking to my wife and uh that made me relax and uh, really recover. And
0: this is just, uh, out of curiosity. You mentioned because you went to Korea. Do you go on
1: vacations often? Do you go traveling often, or is it just mainly to Korea quite regularly to South Korea? So, the person vac- I my wife blamed me as a work colleague. And uh, I I acknowledge that I work hard. So, vacation, I in the early uh, phase, uh, when I was a graduate student and postdoc, I rarely took a vacation and even when I was assistant professor in the early stage of my independent career I rarely took a vacation either mm. so I tend to be a bit <laughs> I hate to call it work colleague but I like work. I find that a lot of
0: scientists you kind of have to be if you're a scientist because a lot of times with scientists you get them times where you've got to work like seven till seven for like weeks and weeks and you're just working like six days a week or even longer like maybe sometimes even seven days a week because it depends on your experiments in that case the animals or cells you're using and kind of have to be you have to love your work to put that much effort yeah. into
1: it absolutely yeah and, i i was the only one you know when i was in england oxford i was the only one in the whole department working in the christmas and uh oh. um i nobody forced me if I, somebody asked me to do it i would hate it i absolutely hate it but i want something in the science and wanted to make something cool. to work so
0: yeah that was everything so just yeah i'm I'm looking forward to seeing to hearing more about your
1: research okay sounds good thank you you're welcome thanks
0: thanks for your time see you okay
1: bye, bye.
0: summary this was a great episode with a lot of information to cover Firstly, let's cover Dr. Kim's history. He studied pharmacy because he wanted to help people and making the drugs to help people was the way he thought he could do this. But after a year of working in cancer pharmacy, he found that he did not like taking the orders from the doctors and doing the same repetitive tasks day in and day out. So he thought, how can I change this? And he thought research would be the way to do this. He always had an interest in neuroscience, especially in autism, so he started looking for PhDs that he could do, and he found quite a few in America. However, he finally got accepted in a neuroscience PhD, but it was not into autism, which was his primary interest, but into adult stem cells, which was his secondary interest. He worked on stem cells in mice, but near the end of his PhD, his supervisor moved to Oxford the University of Oxford and so he moved there with him and carried on his research for around two more years. Then he got postdoc in a different lab back in America and finally he's got his current position at Penn State where he's been working up the ladder to eventual full professorship. His research is looking into further understanding the neurodevelopmental and neurodegenerative diseases which he believes are two sides of the same coin. He believes they're very much the same and I'm inclined to follow him because when you think about it, what happens when you get older is you do revert to how you were when you're younger in a lot of cases. I know it's quite a simplistic overview, but when you do look at brain regions, neurons and so on, you do find that a lot of them revert to younger ages in terms of losing certain proteins or increasing production of other proteins. I do wonder where such a theory will lead and I do look forward to finding out. Now moving on to the paper. His paper was based on a third of his lab research which is looking into cerebrovasculature which just means blood flow in the brain and to look at this he used 3D imaging. Which I think is really cool because using new technologies like this will open up more information for us. But the thing that I really liked about his research is the fact that he's looking at the bigger picture. He wants to bring about the full overview of the brain. So not just looking at a specific brain region or specific cell type or neuron. He wants to look at the overall picture of neurons GLIA, GLIA being the supporting cells in the brain, and also the cells that control the blood flow, such as parasites and smooth muscle cells. And he wants to look at this overview in the normal brain in neurodevelopmental diseases and in neurodegenerative diseases. But technically to him, neurodevelopmental and neurodegenerative diseases are the same thing. But this overview picture generates a lot of information. And his research is leading into the pentabyte stage of data production per day, that's 1,000 above terabytes, which is a lot of information. But I guess you need that amount if you want to understand the brain because it's so complex. They do say that we have more connections between our neurons in the brain than there are stars in the Milky Way. or I think it's grains of sand on the Earth, but either way, it's a lot of connections, and that means a lot of complexity. So I think we need this amount of information to understand the brain. The paper was fascinating, as I believe that blood flow is quite an understood area in the brain. And it plays a massive role in how the brain works, because we know that the brain is an energy hungry area. It uses up 25% of our energy per day. And his paper was first looking at inhibitory neurons. And the reason he chose these neurons is because we know inhibitory neurons play a large role in many different diseases through something called excitation inhibition balance, which is where you have either neurons firing too much or too little. And that means that there's, and that means something goes wrong in the communication between neurons. And in the end, some sort of bad response in the brain. He looked at, GABAergic neurons which are inhibitory neurons. GABA is the main neurotransmitter that causes inhibitory signals in the brain and the main neuron he found that is very energy hungry is parvalbumin neurons and this is really important because it links to previous research in this area because parvalbumin neurons have already been shown to play a key role in diseases such as Alzheimer's disease and autism. And another really interesting fact is parvalbumin neurons are the main neurons that have this net around them of proteins called a perineuronal net. And this helps in controlling their activity. And this net is caused been seen to be broken down in diseases such as Alzheimer's disease. So if we can understand this relationship, we might be able to develop new treatments and also increase our understanding. He also described how they looked for nitric oxide positive neurons. Nitric oxide causes vessels to vasodilate, which means they expand, and this changes the blood supply. To me, this is incredibly interesting because blood supply is really important, and being able to control it is something we need to understand. But his research did show that there's an opposite relationship between blood vessel quantity and nitric oxide neurons. They don't really understand why, but it's something that hopefully we'll find out later on. And his research indicated from the 3D imaging that the most vampirish neurons, the ones that want the most blood, are those in the motor regions and the sensory regions of the cortex. He could only look at regions in the cortex because if he also showed information in his paper from deeper regions, this paper would have been way too long. But they found that the motor and sensory areas needed the most blood supply. And he thinks this is down to the, the fact that for our motor and sensory capabilities, we need to have tight control of them. So they need a better blood supply compared to the integrative or association areas, which just combine information from different brain regions. He does want to look at deeper brain regions. I'm going to stay up to date with this to see whether they have a higher blood vessel supply compared to the motor and sensitive regions and how that's affected in different diseases. He also wants to eventually do these experiments in older mice to see what effect he has, and also in disease mice, which having this ability to be able to compare the different areas will be really useful. Finally, it's advice for students to look around when you're looking for undergraduate degrees, master's, PhDs, postdocs or any sort of other job. This can be taken for science and other careers which is really useful because it will help you to find an area which is still something you're interested in even though you might not be able to find it in your initial area of interest. And also as always scientists have to do things to relax. Kim does that too but I think everyone should because you can't be working all the time and you have to Be doing something else as well. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you learned something new and be sure to check out the paper, which I've linked in the description. Also, check out the website for Brain Explained, where there'll be the rest of the episodes, and there's also a blog where we will be publishing blog posts about recent neuroscience. I'm also looking for anyone who'd be interested in contributing towards the blog. This would involve just writing blog posts about neuroscience research that's recently come out in the past week or two. It's a totally voluntary position, but it'd be great for you to keep up to date on neuroscience and also to improve your science communication skills. If this is something that interests you, I would be delighted to hear from you. And please contact me by the Twitter account or by the email address, which is outlook.com. And I look forward to exploring another paper bringing to light the brilliance of the brain through new neuroscience research.